Let's pray. We extol you, our God and King. We bless your name forever and ever. Every day we bless you and praise your holy name forever and ever. Especially on this day, this Lord's Day that you have set aside for us. We come here to worship you today and say, Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised, and to hear from you and to sit under your feet. Therefore, we commend your works one to another and declare your mighty acts. And from one generation to the next, we tell of your greatness on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. We meditate this day in Christ's name. Amen. Stand for the reading of the word of God. Acts 18, 18 through 28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncria, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow and they came to Ephesus and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through the grace of God, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Amen. Praise God. This is his word. In this passage, a new important city in the early life of the church is introduced, Ephesus. Um, Also, Paul concludes his second journey and begins his third, and he even gets a haircut. There's a lot going on in this passage. Uh, There's a lot compressed into a few verses in this passage. So I think it would be easy to lose sight of what I believe is the, the main focus of the text, which I don't believe it's Ephesus yet, And I don't believe it's really Apollos or Priscilla or Aquila or even Paul. But I think still the emphasis is on Corinth. Corinth is an important city and a strategic city. And moreover, it is a city filled with potential and actual pitfalls for the church, including a great deal of of sin and licentiousness. Um, but also the, the vigorous attacks of the Jews, that the Jews are severely opposed to Christianity. 
And here Paul is called on to fresh missionary endeavors. And the question, I think, is how will this young Corinthian church fare? So I believe this is the story of Christ's provision of a new leader who is uniquely gifted and qualified to step in and care for Christ's sheep in Corinth. And I think this passage is really a picture for us of what we read or or a real life example of what we read in Ephesians 4. Uh, Ephesians 4, 7 through 14 about the ascended Christ and the gifts that he gives us. It says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And what are those gifts? Uh, In verse 11, those gifts are he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers. Those are Christ, the ascended Christ gifts to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So I believe this text is an example of that, of Christ, the ascended Christ, providing for his church, providing for the church in Corinth. Uh, Stuart and I this last week were looking up the beliefs of Christian science. It's an interesting activity. Uh, And one of the tenets is that the, the pastor of the church is not a flesh and blood Person, but it's the Bible, usually the KJV, and it's Mary Baker Eddy's book, uh, Science and Health with the Key to Scripture, key, key, uh, Scripture Key. That's the pastor of the church. Now, surely not to this extreme, but I wonder, do we ourselves spurn the caring gift of Christ in the church? Of course, we can point to many examples in the broader Western church, the uh, the house church movement, or those who just say, all I need is Jesus in my Bible, in my prayer closet. People who misapply the concept of of the priesthood of all believers. Uh, But surely we ourselves also spurn Christ's gift. And I, I myself, I can tell you, even as one called to this ministry, can identify ways in which I myself want to buck against that challenge and pain of being one of Christ's under shepherds. Christ calls Paul and and his helpful companions, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, away from Corinth, creating a void, creating a vacuum in Corinth. And he is yet faithful to supply a new leader, one who's who's tailor-made for that position. So again, I believe Corinth is the focus of this text in which Christ the King is uh, commended to us as our faithful provider and gift giver. Um, so we begin in verse 18 here. Initially, Luke tells us about the departure of Paul and Aquila and Priscilla from Corinth. We'll just read 18 through 21 again. After this, that is after Paul was brought before Gallio, uh, Paul stayed many days longer, a total of 18 months in Corinth. And he took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. 
Uh, Paul here is a man on a mission, and it doesn't say why, but he's focused on getting back to Syria, getting back to the church at Antioch, to his home base, to his sending church. On the way out of town, he gets this haircut. Uh, Sincre is the port about 10 miles to the east of Corinth, uh, kind of across the isthmus of Corinth. Uh, there, or, um, and so basically just before they depart by sea, that's when he cuts his hair. And we don't know quite what kind of vow he was under. The first initial obvious choice would be he's under some kind of Nazarite vow, which we read about in uh, Numbers chapter 6, which includes no cutting of the hair, um, no partaking of alcohol, no drinking or partaking of grapes of any kind, raisins, um, wine, obviously. Uh, the person under a Nazarite vow had very stringent purity laws, like you do not touch a dead body, do not get in proximity to a dead body. Um, Samson was under the, the Nazarite vow. He ate out of a dead lion, so he wasn't the best uh, keeper of his vow. Um, but the, the, the process of cutting your hair, if you were following the tradition properly, is you would do that and you would go to the temple or go to Jerusalem and make sacrifices, kind of the end of your Nazarite vow. And here Paul does it in, in Sincurie, and then it's possible he could have taken his hair with him or something, but part of, part of the vow is burning the hair as part of your sacrifice. So there's a question, you know, after all that they've gone through with, with the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, whether Paul would really undertake a Nazarite vow. Um, the other possibility is simply that he was under a personal vow of thanksgiving, for, perhaps for the salvation he had um, with, with the incident with Gallio and the Jews, which personally I think is the more likely possibility. Either way, he cuts his hair and they move on to, um, to Ephesus. And Paul is, they're headed, he's headed to Syria, but they stop on the way in Ephesus, and Paul's decided to leave Priscilla and Aquila here in Ephesus, and presumably to carry on the work of the gospel, but it's almost like he can't help himself. He has to go visit the synagogue. He has to go evangelize in the synagogue before he leaves Ephesus. And he does, and oddly, the one time he wants to leave quickly, the Jews say, please stay. But and, and he declines, which is also a bit odd because Paul usually seems pretty open to sort of the calling of the Lord and what's before him. But for some reason, and this is another mystery, I believe, in the text, is we don't know quite why Paul wanted to go to Syria so badly. Some versions, if you have an NKJV or a KJV, actually gives a reason why. Um, this is from some manuscripts where he says, I must by all means keep the feast that comes in Jerusalem. That's a possibility that he wanted to go uh, perhaps take advantage of the Jews coming into Jerusalem and, and, and witness to them. Um, but again, from a purely textual standpoint, manuscript tradition standpoint, that's probably not original. And so um, I, I wouldn't uh, go with that decision. Another possibility is maybe simply the weather. It was summertime. He wanted to get there, get to Antioch before uh, and spend the winter there so that after the winter was over, he could go back into Galatia, go back over the Taurus Mountains and continue on his visita- excuse me, visitation circuit. 
so once again, we don't know for sure why Paul was so hot and bothered to get back to uh, Syria. But he does two, two things here. And, and here we see the providential care of Christ uh, for his church in what Paul does, and that he's raising up leaders and people to establish care for the church. And it doesn't all depend on Paul. So he leaves Priscilla and Aquila there in Ephesus to help carry on the movement. And second, Paul promises to return if God wills, which is a common phrase both in Judaism and in Gentile culture. If God wills, I'll come back to you, which we see Actually, next week, already in chapter 19, Luke has Paul back in Ephesus. So God did will that he would come back to Ephesus. Now in the next verses, verses 22 and 23, we briefly get a a conclusion to the second uh, missionary journey and the start of the third. And it's really very unceremonious. We kind of like to block it out like, Paul's first missionary journey, second, third, but it's just kind of all flows together. And for some reason, Luke compresses all of this into just a few verses. Um, so verses 22 and 23, when he had landed at uh, Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, uh, strengthening all the disciples. Again, considering the normal level of detail that Luke provides, it's odd that he just crams all of this into this little part of the story. This is a 600-plus mile sail from Ephesus to uh, Caesarea. And then, of course, going back by land to Ephesus is much farther. So over a 1,200-mile journey in the matter of less than seven verses or eight verses. Um, And we don't know why he compresses so much. Derek Thomas suggests that Luke wants us to focus on the ministry that Paul is doing in in Corinth and Ephesus, these two major cities. It's a possibility. Um, Caesarea is a port city, 55 miles to the northwest of Jerusalem on the Mediterranean coast. It's a 2,500-foot elevation gain from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And the reason I bring that up is most commentators believe that it, when it says he went up and saw the church, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. That's the most likely possibility that he visited the church, perhaps the other apostles in Jerusalem. And then it says he went down, down in elevation, but 300 miles north back to Antioch to his home church, his sending church. Uh, and then after spending some time in Antioch, perhaps again to wait for the weather. So uh, the Taurus Mountains were about like the mountains we have here, roughly 14,000 feet. Passes would close up and to get from Antioch back into Galatia, you would have to go not during the winter. So perhaps he spent the winter uh, there in Antioch. But then he left Antioch and went into Galatia and visits these churches that he planted Um, Perhaps for the third or even some for the fourth time, he's visiting these churches, checking in on them, making sure they're okay. And even though it's very compressed, we get a sense of how Christ's under-shepherd labors for the church here in these early days, that it's it's through evangelism and ongoing discipleship. Whether it's leaving Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus, 
uh, sending Apollos to Corinth, which we'll look at in a minute, or Paul himself going on visitation. He's always checking in on and caring for the churches. He's not just evangelizing and putting notches in his belt, but he's caring for the churches. Paul, together with the other apostles, were actively laying the foundation of the church as the gift of God to his people, including us. We stand on the same foundation that Paul was laying here. Luke says here that he was going around strengthening the disciples. Um, Surely in these Gentile lands it was difficult to be a Christian outpost. As disciples, they're disciples not of Paul, uh, but of Christ. And they sit at the feet of Jesus, who is uh, an ascended rabbi up in heaven, who has not left them without testimony. But Paul went along strengthening them like a herald who bears the encouraging words of the king to, to beleaguered and weary soldiers. And again, for us, what a glorious gift. The New Testament is for us. That we have the same testimony of the apostles. And that we have the same word from the king to to beleaguered souls as we seek to follow and to sit at the feet of Jesus as his disciples. So Paul has departed Corinth. He's gone on a great journey and now... now, um, Luke backs this up and he take, brings us in at a more narrow look at what's going on in Ephesus and ultimately what's going on in Corinth yet. So in verse 24, we're introduced to this man, Apollos. He's an eloquent Jew from Alexandria, Egypt, a city with many Jews in it. And Luke says of him that he was competent in the scriptures, and that he had been instructed in the Lord. And that he was fervent in spirit and taught accurately about the things of Jesus. This word eloquent either means well-educated or simply eloquent, well-spoken. Probably both. And he was fervent in spirit. Uh, Scholars go back and forth. Does this mean fervent in the Holy Spirit? Or just that his, his personality and his vigor were strong? And probably, again... Both. You you don't have zeal for the Lord without the power of the Holy Spirit. Clearly here, though, Luke's point, what he's drawing our attention to, is this is a gifted man, a gifted individual, a gifted teacher. His gifting is interestingly, it's interesting when we contrast it against Paul. Paul could certainly ably proclaim the gospel. He was an instrument used by God for much fruit. And yet he says of himself in 2 Corinthians 11, I am unskilled in speaking. Or unpolished, plain, or the word is literally idiotes in speaking. So it's interesting contrasting these two men. And Paul was not sort of the Saul of the tribe of Benjamin, tall, attractive, kingly, compelling uh, kind of leader. But Apollos did have that quality. I don't know if you've ever had the thought about maybe an unbeliever who you view as, as capable, uh, perhaps a strong rhetorician or, or thoughtful um, 
I think of somebody like Jordan Peterson in our day. Like, man, what a force that guy could be for the kingdom if he was converted. I think there's maybe part of that kind of thinking that's a little bit misplaced, or at least has the possibility of having misguided motivations. After all, has God not chosen the weak to shame the strong? Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? On the other hand, I think we can be somewhat suspicious of giftedness. At least I can be. Okay, this dude is too smooth. What's wrong with this guy? However, God does use people, both uh, extraordinarily gifted and varied giftings according to his purpose. Whether it's an Apollo, Apollo or an Apollos, he uses them for his glory. So in general, I think this description of Apollos is neither flattery nor a sight. It's just a fact. It's simply true. He was a gifted man and a powerful teacher. Not only that, he had good doctrine. Uh, he knew the scriptures well, had been instructed in the Lord, and taught accurately the things of Jesus. And we might ask ourselves, how can that be true, considering what Luke says, that he, he only knew the baptism of John? Remember, John uh, was extremely famous. He had many followers. Um, but at this point in redemptive history, his ministry had served its purpose. Uh, he had leveled the ground for the Messiah. He had called uh, Israel to repentance, and he had decreased, and Christ had increased. It's important to keep in mind that John's baptism was not like a proto-Christian baptism. It was a different thing than the baptism we practice. It was a baptism of repentance, a call for the Jews to repent and turn from their ways. At least they receive another baptism, the baptism of fire, the baptism of judgment. Christian baptism is also a sign of washing of repentance, but also forgiveness of sins and joining together with the body of Christ, initiation into the family of God. And so to, to preach kind of the baptism of John is sort of to re-level ground that John had already leveled. So I don't think Apollos was not in grave error per se. His theology wasn't necessarily wrong. It was deficient. It, It wasn't enough. He hadn't gone far enough. He hadn't understood far enough. Now we can see how he could have preached sound doctrine and still have followed in John's footsteps in some ways because John himself uh, cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the world's sin. John knew who the Messiah was, like Apollos knows who the Messiah was. Now, as he preaches boldly in the synagogue, Priscilla and Aquila um, got this sense there's something lacking here, and so they lovingly pull him aside in private. Perhaps they have him over for a meal. I gently explain to him the way of God more accurately. They correct Apollos, the great teacher Apollos. I find this to be a beautiful interaction. I have a few reasons why I think it's a beautiful interaction. First, Priscilla and Aquila took time and care to lovingly bring correction, which is a difficult thing to do. And for the sake of Apollos and for the church. 
Secondly, Priscilla and Aquila were mere tradespeople. And yet, Erudite uh, Apollos has the humility to listen to them. Calvin says, again, this was no small modesty which was in Apollos, in that he doth suffer himself to be taught and instructed not only by a handy craftsman, but also by a woman. He was mighty in the scripture and did surpass them, but as touching the accomplishment of the kingdom of Christ, those do polish and trim him who might seem to be scarce fit ministers. So they were in many senses lower than he was. And he listened to them. He had the humility to listen to him. This is the beauty now of the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. And another example of the the Berean principle. That a man who is as skilled in the word or who is eloquent or or, that, that, that man is still never above correction by the Holy Scriptures. Calvin here mentions, uh, I read it already, the, another point I think that's beautiful in this interaction, and that Priscilla was a woman in that culture, a very lowly position to be. Priscilla is also called uh, Prisca in the New Testament. She's mentioned throughout, and is an important figure. She's often mentioned before her husband, Priscilla and Aquila, which is unusual. It may have been she was of higher social standing, um, it may also be that kind of like when we meet somebody, say we have a, a female friend named Sarah and we know her well. And then there's her husband, Greg, Sarah and Greg. We don't know why Priscilla is mentioned before Aquila, but she's an important figure. And Calvin here continues. He says, also, we see that at that time, women were not so ignorant of the word of God as the papists would have them. For as much as we see that one of the chief teachers of the church was instructed by a woman, Notwithstanding, we must remember that Priscilla did execute this function of teaching at home in her own house that she might not overthrow the order prescribed by God and nature. That's an important point. And this is not, this is far from overflowing uh, or uh, overthrowing Paul's principle in 2 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, though I think it does help us understand application of that text a little bit. Clear, uh, Priscilla was clearly involved in correcting Apollos. Even in this text, her name is mentioned first. However, she's far from exercising ecclesiastical authority over Apollos. They listened to him speaking, not in the church, but at an evangelistic setting, and they instructed him in private together as a couple. So this is not a picture of a woman trying to undermine the creation order, but one of a couple lovingly, caringly taking aside this man and instructing him in the way. Another thing that's beautiful about this interaction that is, it's not only tent makers or a woman that are able to clarify the point of the gospel for this man and that he's humbly submitted to that, but it's beautiful because we see Christ uses imperfect men for his purposes. Apollos, as strong as he was, did not have perfect doctrine, and yet God has been using him to proclaim the gospel. 
He was even commended as a man well taught in the scriptures, even though he had deficiencies in the gospel. We need to remember that, that that any man we look up to or highly esteem as a man of God has clay feet. Only Christ is completely whole. And yet Christ uses men with clay feet. He uses jars of clay. We must never think that because we don't know everything or because because we have this or that deficiency, Christ can't use us for his glory. And in fact, if we see deficiencies in ourselves, far from being a valid excuse to abstain from service, it actually qualifies us to serve because we're just the kind of vessels Christ wants to use. He loves to display His glory in our weakness. And that's one of the great themes in Acts. This is a military book, a conquest. The story of the victory of the kingdom of the ascended Christ. But far from sort of being this this blitzkrieg, militaristic brawn that Christ could exhibit if he wanted to, Christ displays his power by soundly defeating his enemy over and over again through weak men and unexpected ways. It's the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. That through suffering with Christ and the simple proclamation of the gospel... Christ's kingdom advances. Uh, Lastly, this interaction is beautiful because it better equips Paul to fulfill his ministry and his next calling in Corinth. Um, This is such so true that that Paul considers Apollos a co-laborer in the gospel when he says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God provides the growth. And so we come again back around to what I believe is kind of the main uh, point of the passage. We've seen Paul and Priscilla and Aquila depart from Corinth. We've been introduced to Apollos and seen his preparation for better better ministry uh, by God's grace. And we now see why this fragile, young uh, Christian church in a licentious city, a city with rabid Jewish opposition, would not be left on its own in Paul's absence. That Christ would here provide. So verse 18, 27 and 28. Then he wished to cross to Achaia. The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through the grace, through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, Jesus, Christ was Jesus. I think I just imagine the disappointment of the Jews. Yes, Paul is finally gone. 18 months. And then in comes Apollos, who's even a better debater than Paul was. And in this way, it says, in this way, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. By defeating the Jews in public debate, he helped the believers in Corinth. This is grace upon grace. It says they had believed by grace, and now there's a grace of the provision of a champion in that city. The perfect person for their needs, someone to keep the Jews off the backs of the sapling church while it continues to grow and to strengthen in the Lord. And, of course, uh, Paulus' main point of contention, something esteemed by his own mentor, John the Baptist, 
Jesus was the Christ, according to the scriptures. It all comes back to that. Jesus was the Christ. Christ called a uniquely gifted man here to serve the people in Corinth. Uh, and he called different men. He called Paul first and then Apollos. Men with two very different styles of preaching, of ministry. Um, and in fact, to the point that actually the immature church in Corinth began to fall into the mistake of identifying themselves with a particular preacher. 1 Corinthians 1.12 I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. And Paul rebukes them. He says, is Christ divided? Did Paul Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? We need to be so careful about this in our day. With the internet, with the abundance of online content, which is such a blessing to us, But we also have a buffet of possible teachers and ideals to which we can subscribe and with which we can identify ourselves. We have to be very careful with that. I I feel this particularly pointedly as I grew up in the Internet age, but I also uh, work for an institution that has many good teachers uh, who are not my pastor. Uh, Through the years, I've had been influenced by some men who are uh, and, and deeply impacted by men who are um, not my pastor. Early on, John Piper, later James White, uh, Michael Horton, now I'd say Kevin DeYoung has been, been very influential on me, and of course Ligonier. But I, I am not a DeYoungian. I'm not a Ligonierian. I'm a Christian. That's to say nothing of naming ourselves, which is another discussion for another time. Um, so I say let's enjoy the abundance of blessing and riches we have available to us. I'd be neglectful not to. But also let me offer some gentle reminders. Perhaps reminders to myself chiefly. Remember that even the most apparently sound and gifted teacher has clay feet. He will fail us in some respect. All of the men who I I said earlier can identify problems. Also, remember, ministers of the gospel of Christ uh, are ministers of the gospel are Christ's kind gift to his church. As we saw in Ephesians 4, they're his kind gift to his church, and he gives to each church according to their needs and the purposes he wishes to accomplish. And the, the conclusion about, about that, which I feel a great sense of weight and burden and honestly foreboding, is that's me and for this church and Michael and Brian. And, sorry, Paige, I would include Paige as well. It's serious business. As feeble and broken vessels as we are, it's important to remember, Ligonier is not my pastor. Kevin DeYoung is not my pastor. John Calvin is not my pastor. My pastors are the session of this church, and in our polity, the Rocky Mountain Presbytery. Many ministries are blessing, but these men and those men are the ascended Christ's gifts to me. That's so important to remember. 
Finally, remember that Christ alone is the great shepherd. All his feeble servants are are one, just mere under-shepherds. It was he who powerfully provided Apollos for Corinth and who provides for our needs as well. So I'll leave you with Paul's words from uh, 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians 3, 4 through 11. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon us. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Amen.